my name is Alex. As Cassie mentioned, um, we're very grateful that you chose to worship with us, that you've chosen, um, yeah, to spend a little bit of time with us on a Sunday morning. If you are unfamiliar with um, Christian tradition, you may have wondered, what cult did I walk into? I promise, we're not a cult. Um, we want to connect ourselves to the traditions of the church and the story of the saints. And that's one of the reasons why um, over this fall, um, probably for the next, I think it's 12 to 13 weeks, we'll be walking through the Apostles' Creed. Um, because we believe that the Apostles' Creed is one of the best summations of the Christian story. It's not scripture, um, but it uses straightforward scriptural language to summarize the story from Genesis to Revelation. It tells us kind of the con consistent themes that show up throughout the scripture. We also believe that it's not simply a method of routine repetition, but it is a pledge of allegiance of sorts. That every time we come together, we declare where our loyalty and our allegiance truly lie. And that is with the God who created heaven and earth. And then it also reminds us that we are connected to an ancient story and an ancient faith. That we are rooted in something that has been around for a long time. That it wasn't come up with 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100, 500 years ago. That we are connected with the saints throughout history to the story of Jesus. And so we're excited to continue journeying through this. Well, today we are on the line, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this phrase is actually on page one of the scripture. It is literally like the first line. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And let me tell you, I went down all the rabbit trails this week. And uh, there are a thousand ways to talk about this because it is the baseline of what we believe. Like if, if you don't believe that God created all of this, you're kind of outside of Christian orthodoxy altogether. So like this is the, the, the grounding of everything we believe. And it shows up in the Bible well over 20 times. The Apostles' Creed riffs on this line, I believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, shows up on Genesis 1, but it also shows up in Exodus 20, Exodus 31, 2 Kings 19, 2 Chronicles 2, Psalm 115, Psalm 121, 1, Psalm 124, Psalm 134, Isaiah 37, Acts 17, 2 Peter, Revelation. It shows up a lot of places. You get the idea. It's a theme that is consistent throughout the biblical narrative. And it, this phrase and this statement really sets the stage and introduces the main character of our text. God, the creator of heaven and earth. Quick backstory before we get into it. In the second century, there was a guy named Marcion. Marcion was a Christian, but he believed that the God who created Genesis was a lesser God than the one we came to know in Jesus. Marcion was eventually deemed a heretic in part because he advanced the idea called Gnosticism, a philosophy that basically says spirit good, 
body bad. This is a division that has consisted throughout the story of Christianity that this, what is called a heresy, continues to pop up. Spirit good, body bad. Marcion and his followers took this to such a degree that they punished themselves They punished their body so that they could focus on achieving spiritual knowledge because they were so focused on understanding spirit good, body bad. Marcion isn't the only Gnostic. There were Gnostics throughout the centuries, and some took it to a different place. They said, if the spirit is good and our bodies don't matter, that this creation doesn't matter, we can treat it however we want. So you have one example of incredible discipline and pain and harm going into the human body and then other stories of just treating their body like garbage, trash, and doing whatever they felt necessary. Gnosticism is an ancient idea, but it has not gone away. It has simply rebranded itself throughout the centuries. Maybe you have come from a church or a tradition that the theme you hear in your mind when we talk about Christianity is spirit good, body bad. You heard maybe the teachings of Paul's words on the flesh equated to that means your physical body and the creation we reside in is an evil thing. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. Gnosticism hasn't gone away. It's simply rebranded itself. Anytime there is a disregard for the human body, that's Gnosticism. Anytime there is a teaching that treats sex like a disease or a commodity, that's not Christianity. That's Gnosticism. Phrases like, it will all burn anyway, is not Christianity. It's Gnosticism. Disregard for the state of our planet is not Christianity, it's Gnosticism. There are many ways Gnosticism has invaded and put itself in our churches, but I think one of the most persuasive ways is the philosophy that teaches that our theology is of little consequence to the rest of our lives, or that the rest of our lives are of little consequence to our theology. Modern Gnosticism takes the form of separation between our Sunday convictions and our Monday vocation. Gnosticism is this idea that what I do on my Sunday morning when I'm with my church family is very different than what I do at 8 a.m. when I walk into the office. Many of us would not say that that's how we think about our work and our life, but if we were honest with ourselves, our Sunday theology and our Monday vocation just seem way too separated to reconcile. And I don't think that means that you're a bad person. I think that just simply means we've believed a story that is more Gnostic than it is Christian. And so as we walk through what it means that God is the creator of heaven and earth, I want to reclaim the idea that what you do Monday through Friday, either for a pay or for not a pay, whether it's parenting or writing, whether it's welding or coding, whether it's gardening or accounting, whatever you do, whatever you put your hands to 
matters to God. It matters what we do with ourselves and with our lives. So, I, pa- I believe in part this confusion has been that we believe a story that's more Gnostic than Christian. So, if you were to go out and ask your friends, what do Christians believe? What do I believe? They'll say something like this. Jordan, can you put up that first slide that starts with my life on earth? So they won't say it like this, but here's what they believe. They think that you and I think that we showed up on earth, somehow everything went awry, and we just exist on this earth until we die, hoping that we do a few more good things than bad things, and then at the end, when we hit that decision point, God will either send us to this disembodied place where there's babies and harps and clouds, and it's paradise, or we'll be sent to like an underground torture chamber for all of eternity. This is what most of your friends think Christianity is. And some of you are like, yeah, this seems about right. I love you too much to say this is not Christianity. This is closer to Gnosticism than it is Christianity. This idea that what you do on earth, you just have to tick a few more boxes in the good than the bad, or this idea that you just have to contain some kind of idea about who God is, and that will get you into the good place versus the bad place, that is not Christian. That's closer to a sitcom called The Good Place, if you've never watched it, well worth it. This is not the story of Christianity, and yet it's the story that many of us believe. Many of us see our office life as that line, meaning very little to the grand story of God. We just try to maybe not cuss as much in the workplace. We're maybe trying to bring the donuts in on Friday so people like us. And we spend our time counting until we get to that decision point, hoping and praying that God will send us to the place of floating babies, clouds, and harps, and a pearly gate with the Apostle Peter. That is not Christianity. That is Gnosticism. And so, I would like to maybe suggest we adopt a different vision of the Christian story And this will mean starting in Genesis 1 and going all the way to Revelation. So groan with me. We'll be flipping through all the pages of Scripture. And I wish I could spend a lot of time on every single passage, but we're going to move quick. So, sword drills, get ready. We're going to start. We're going to begin in Genesis 1. So if you've got a Bible, you've got your phone, turn with me to Genesis 1. The story arc by which we will follow is three parts. Creation, decreation, and recreation. Three parts to the story of Scripture. Creation, decreation, recreation. Creation begins with heaven and earth united. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. 
God is the creator of heaven and earth, but even that phrase needs to be fleshed out just a little bit. Earth we all get. We're like, that's, that's the blue pearl that I live on. Like, I understand earth. Heaven is a little bit more confusing because when we hear heaven, most of us think again of the clouds, the babies, and the harp. Heaven in the Jewish understanding was either the skies or God's space, and oftentimes it's a messy mingling of it. If you were a first, or not a first century, but an ancient Near Eastern, Eastern Israelite, if you, someone said, where does God exist? The obvious answer would be, like, up there. Like, look at the skies, look at the sun, look at the moon. So when they're talking about heaven, typically it's a messy interaction between the sky and God's space. Notice we're not talking about the place we go in the afterlife. We're not talking about a place, again, of pearly gates and clouds. We're talking about where God's rule is ultimate. God created a space of physical reality where the entirety of his rule was made present. It was the overlapping of heaven and earth Quick graphic demonstrating this, the circle of heaven and earth. The Genesis account begins with heaven and earth overlapping in beauty, majesty. Everything God declares is good. The creation story begins. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light. There was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. In the beginning, God speaks to the raw material of creation, and creation listens. God begins to architect beauty from the chaos, and he surveys his work and declares, it is good. And that theme of goodness runs throughout the entirety of Genesis 1, revealing that creation itself is a labor of love. Let us do a quick flyover of Genesis 1. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And it was so, and God said it was good. Verse 11, God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, and God saw that it was good. Verse 14, and God said, let the, there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And God saw that it was good. Verse 20, God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. Verse 31, and God saw everything he had made. And behold, it was very good. Time and time over, God emphatically declares that creation is good. Creation is good. The beauty of the mountains, the expanse of the sky, the, the ocean we experience, the food we taste, God emphatically declares is good. That from its beginning, creation was declared to be a good thing. The testimony of Genesis 1 challenges any idea that the material reality is evil or that it doesn't matter or that our environment, our planet, our possessions, our body, or our neighbors don't matter. 
Genesis 1 challenges any idea that the things you spend your time on are irrelevant. For God looks down at creation and he declares, it is good. And then he invites humanity into the process of taking care of his good creation. Look at verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock and over all the earth. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1 is not primarily about the creation of the universe. It is primarily about God's creation of humankind and his entrusting of the rest of his creation to us. Genesis 1 tells of his efforts to prepare a beautiful place in which we may dwell and partner with him. That we, as those made in his image, may take care of his good creation. Skipping down to Genesis 2.5, we'll pick up in verse 7. The Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he formed. Skipping down to verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. From the beginning, there has always been a job to do. The first human, called Adam, is set to care for, to cultivate, and to work the ground. He is a gardener entrusted with the space God calls good. To be made in the image of God is to, in part, be trusted with God's creation. It is to receive what God calls good and to be entrusted with caring for it. That means it matters what we do with the ground God gave us. The human race is called and expected to share in God's work of creation. He invites us to turn barren fields into teeming gardens, wastelands into forests, chaos into order. In part, it's because he created a creation that is bursting with possibility. Buried within the framework of creation is the possibility of life and goodness. For every seed can become a plant. For every fruit become, can become more fruit. Every animal, the possibility of a new animal. Within every human, the possibility of a new human. And within every human is also the possibility of choice. From the beginning, you and I were called to do something meaningful to cultivate God's good creation, to look at the world and imagine a more beautiful, equitable, and just planet. But just with the introduction of possibilities, the, the possibility of betrayal becomes possible. So we'll move on to part two, the decreation. Jordan, if you'll throw up that 
second graphic of heaven and earth being pulled apart. You may know the story, but here are the spark notes. In the garden paradise, there was one that was hell-bent on returning the world back to chaos. He revealed himself to the first humans as a serpent, and he said to the humans, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The humans, thinking the snake must be new, say we can eat from any tree except the one in the middle of the garden, for God said if we do, we will die. The snake lies to them. You will not die. You will be gods, deciding for yourself what is good and what is evil. And as the story goes, the humans partake. Their eyes are opened to their rebellion, and they hide in shame. The central feature of the creation story becomes the central motif of the biblical narrative. God moves towards humanity in loving kindness. He invites them into relationship and partnership, and humanity ruptures the relationship by choosing to do what is right in their own eyes. Again and again, God moves towards humans. He invites them into mission to rightly order his world. And once again, they betray his confidence. This is the entirety of the Old Testament summed up in three points. God moves towards people. He invites them into mission, and they mess it up. Time and time again, he moves towards Moses. He invites him into the mission, and somehow Moses ends up messing it up. He moves towards David. He invites David into his mission, and at some point, David messes it up. This is the story of the Old Testament time and time and time again. God moves towards his people, invites them into his good mission, and somehow they mess it up. But it's not just the story of the Old Testament. I think you and I probably recognize a pattern of our own life in that story. God moves towards us. He invites us into his mission, and somehow we get sidetracked with something else. We betray his call to love our neighbor. We betray his call to bring beauty and justice into the world because we get more distracted with something else. It is the story of humanity time and time and time and time again. Instead of participating in the joy of creation, we participate in the chaos of decreation, of death, of brokenness, time and time and time again. The Apostle Paul writes that even as we participate in this, the people who God has entrusted with all of creation, creation itself groans out for someone to do something about this pattern is there not someone who will stop the process of decreation in the world? All of creation, the birds of the land, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, wait in, in, in anticipation of something new. And that moves us into the final movement of recreation. The king arrives. Whereas God intended for heaven and earth to overlap, decreation, sin enters the world and rips heaven and earth apart, an unnatural and unholy process. And in the person of Christ, heaven and earth are once again coming back together. Look at John's opening to his gospel. In the beginning, sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, there was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men and shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Listen to how the earliest followers of Jesus talk about him. He's the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The followers of Jesus believed that they had met the creator of the heavens and earth. To hear the teachings of Jesus was to hear the very blueprints of God's good creation from God himself. And this was his message. As Matthew 4 puts it, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. The uniting of heaven and earth. Second Peter 3, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21, guys, we made it to the end of the book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, when John is writing passed away, he doesn't mean in the sense of destroyed, but they had been transformed in such a way that they were completely new, and the sea was no more, he picks up at the end of the verse. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. started in Genesis 1, and we discover that the story is about God's good creation that entrusted to humanity has been broken, that the process of decreation has taken place, that we have chosen to do what is right in our own eyes instead of what is good in God's. And in Christ, God is reconciling all things on heaven and earth to himself. The story of the Bible is not about where you go when you die, but about bringing heaven to earth. About advancing God's rule and reign throughout all that we do. Oftentimes we think about the scriptures as our search for God. The reverse is actually the case. It is time and time again about God's search for us, for partners who will partner in the process of creation. It's not about where you'll go when you die. We will talk about that, and the Bible does have a significant amount to say about that. But it's not first and foremost 
the theme of all Scripture. The theme is about advancing the kingdom of God here on this earth. And in this story, we find our proper meaning. In this story, our stories find its place. That's why we say when we're talking about discipleship, it is about aligning our story with his story. We're very accustomed to the cultural Christianity, the, the, the way of shoehorning ourselves into just about every passage. Like we'll read, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And we're like, that is talking about my freshman year of undergrad. Like how great of them to write that to me. We're very familiar with that process of kind of forcing our way into the text. And I think out of um, reaction to that, in some ways, many of us have begun to write ourselves out of the story altogether. We rightfully approach this as an ancient text. We say the Bible was written by people a long time ago who, who have something to say about God, but they don't have too much to say about me. And I think that move is a mistake. I think that move to say, this is too alien for me to understand, is a mistake. I think we are called to see ourselves within the long story of the scripture. That just as Moses partnered with God, we too partner with God. Just as David tried to confront the corruption of the Israelite government, we too are called to confront corruption wherever we find it. Just as Jesus challenges the religious leaders of his day and partners with God and the people to see a new vision for the kingdom, we are too called to announce a new vision. The aim is not to exclude ourselves from the story of God, but to work to find our proper place within it. Each of our stories finds its proper place within his story. Worship team, if you want to join me. James Smith, on this subject, says, We are invited to see Scripture as the narration of an unfolding drama of the God who acts. We are called to be characters in this story, to play the role of God's image bearers who care for and cultivate God's creation to the praise of his glory. To learn this role is to become what we are made to be. This is not play acting or pretending. It is the role we were born to play. In becoming these characters, we become ourselves. To assume this role is to find our vocation. This is the hard work of properly framing our view of Scripture, not as a reference book to my life, but as the story by which I am joining. This is what it means every week when we say that we are revealing the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. Gnosticism has not gone away. It has simply rebranded itself. It has rebranded itself in ways saying that the thing you're doing does not matter to God, that it doesn't have anything to say about eternity or where we're going. That is not the story of Christianity. For the story of Christianity is a God that put his hands into the dirt and worked for six periods of time and invites humanity to do the same. 
So as we go from this place, as we prepare to think about what does it look like to join God in this story, I think it's pretty simple. I think it's to begin thinking about what you do from nine to five, to think about where you spend most of your time in the context of the story of God. How do you think about your vocation? How do you think about your occupation in the story of God? Part of the disconnect is that much of the narration elevates that what I do is more important. That the business I am in of sermons, of small groups, of Bible studies is far more important than what you do. Maybe you had the same experience as me. You went to a camp. Night four was the night that they call everybody to ministry. And you had no thought of ministry beforehand, but you were thinking about it that night. And then when God was silent, you were disappointed. When God didn't speak up on that night, you found yourself going, I I guess I don't have a part to play in all this. This is not to minimize that because I experienced one of those nights for myself. I heard the whisper of my God and that's why I'm here. So I don't want to minimize that, but I do want to challenge the idea that having the title pastor is the only way in which you participate in the creation, in the recreation of our world. For too long, we've made the mistake of narrowing the mission of God to those who have received a call or in the language of the agnostics, a special encounter. And in doing so, we've created a rupture between what we call our spiritual life and what we call our secular life. That's Gnostic. That's not Christian. Whatever you spend most of your time doing, whether that's welding, accounting, writing, cleaning, studying, parenting, God is interested in it all. And as we reflect our God's identity as the creator of heaven and earth, my prayer is that we begin to recognize that he desires to be our co-worker in the creative work of life on earth. Barista, cop, nurse, account manager, bank teller, freelancer, caretaker, maintenance worker, janitor, and gardener. Whatever it is, God is interested in what you're doing and how you are showing up to your job. The obvious question is how do I show up in the way God would have me show up? As we went through the series on Colossians, Paul says this to the Colossian people, whatever you do in word and deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the creator of heaven and earth, the Father through him. I don't think Paul means that you need to brand everything with a Christian fish or that you can only listen to Caleb while you're in the office, or that you need to market yourself as a Christian gardener. I don't think the idea that he's getting at is that you need to wear a big WWJD shirt everywhere you go. I think a simple rubric for asking this question of what would it look like if Jesus was in my workplace would be simply, am I advancing the cause of beauty, of justice, or love today? All three of those things, beauty, justice, or love. Beauty, I think Paul's statement in Romans 8 that all creation is groaning for redemption. I dare say 
that if our God is known as a creative, his people should be too. We should be putting art into the world that bears witness of a God who sculpted the mountains and knit together the honeybee. We should be putting out albums that protest injustice, empower, and uplift. We should be putting beauty into the world. We should be a community of artists. Justice, we should be reminded that the breath that animated Adam animates every single one of us. All people are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect, and we should work towards that. Justice is asking the question of ethics at work. It's to gently confront the racially insensitive comment. It's to challenge the philosophy of profits over people. It is to work, to see your workplace as a different expression of the mission of God. And then finally is love. This sermon and just about every other sermon we put together could be summarized with love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Am I advancing the cause of beauty in my work? Am I advancing the cause of justice in my workplace? Am I advancing love wherever I find myself? Let's pray. Creator of heaven and earth, you have called us to partner with you in the process, process of creation. You have called us to be your image bearers on earth, revealing the goodness of your kingdom. I pray that whatever we find ourselves doing in the nine to five, that we would have the imagination and the creativity to say, how am I advancing the causes of beauty, justice, and love in my workplace. Lord, as you are the creator, may we be creative as well. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen and amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.